Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there. I hope you guys are doing well. Welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking all about selective mutism, and I hope that you find this topic interesting. I've only had one other podcast about that, and that was episode 117 when I talked to Patsy Butterworth, and she was full of amazing information. And that was a great episode from a parent perspective, a parent turned advocate. And this episode is more from a a parent slash professional perspective. So definitely earmark or write down episode 117 because you want to go back and listen to that one as well. But stay tuned for this one because I interviewed Anna Biavate Smith. I hope I'm not mispronouncing her last name. I tend to do that with people. And actually she was part of the AT parenting community. And I didn't realize that she was a leading expert in selective mutism in the UK until I started talking to her and was like, oh my gosh, you are a wealth of knowledge. So of course I had to have her come on. And I'm glad I did because I was really taken back by all of her really interesting insight into selective mutism and how to approach it. It's very specific. And it's nice to talk to someone who, you know, eats, lives and breathes it because I don't. And so I'm bringing her to you and I hope you enjoyed that. If you enjoy my podcast in general, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss them. I have new episodes that come out every Tuesday and you won't miss it if you subscribe. All right. Well, without further ado, here is my interview with Anna. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited because you are a wealth of knowledge in the world of selective mutism and I really am not. And so to have you come on and share your expertise is going to be just a gift for everybody in the audience because there's so many parents who want to know more about this who might even be missing it. So before we dive in, I have a lot of questions for you. Can you just give people some background on who you are and what kind of work you do? I am a highly specialized speech and language therapist. I actually started as an educational psychologist a while back, but I just felt that there was something missing. And children with speech and language difficulties, it's something that totally attracted me. I never realized actually that I went a full circle and I went back actually to uh, deal with children with anxiety. And here in the UK, exactly, well, in Scotland where I live, Speech and language therapists or pathologists, as you say in in America, have a big role in selective mutism because we believe that communication is an important issue with children. And you're right, it's not well understood. So my role is to diagnose, to support and to train both schools and parents really to find the right pathway to communication for children with selective mutism. Yeah, that's great that you work with schools too. That's such a needed thing, um, definitely in the, in the United States. I imagine everywhere in the world. Absolutely. 360 degrees. Communication comes from everywhere. And we actually see that when a child is particularly anxious, the first thing that we see is to stop going to school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, it's so important that school know what to do and what not to do. <laughs> that's exactly. really important. Yeah, because that's pivotal. I feel like the small amount of cases that I've worked with where there was selective mutism, 
either it was discovered by the school or the school was exacerbating the issue. So it was definitely schools kind of a pivotal part of the whole piece of the puzzle. Before we get into some in-depth stuff, could you just describe what selective mutism is for people? Yes, of course. Selective mutism, and I have to say, is not a word that we would like to use because the word selective at times gives everybody the idea that the child or the teenager is actually selectively choosing not to speak. So when we talk about selective mutism, we mean that the child has an inability to speak and communicate effectively in social settings. And we find that happens in particularly at school. So these children are able to speak and communicate at home or in places where they find that they are comfortable, secure and relaxed. And more than 90% of children with selective mutism also have uh, social phobias or social anxieties. And this type of disorder is quite debilitating and I would say quite painful for the child because these children want to speak, but they can't speak. They have an actual fear of speaking and also really to have a social interaction because in social interactions, there is an expectation for them to speak and then to communicate. One of the things that we notice, Natasha, is that, that many children with selective mutism have a great difficulty in responding uh, or initiating communication, also in a non-verbal manner. So it's not just speech, it's also the act of communication. So therefore, social engagement is compromised in many children and it's overwhelming for them and leaving them with a high sense of they don't feel adapt, they don't feel that they are doing the right thing. So my role is very much to make people realize that we can't wait. We see children as young as three years old with a full-blown anxiety, with great speech, but they hide behind their mom and dad. Why do we need to wait for their child going to school when we can apply effective strategies from a very early age. Yeah, that's and a good I sp- point. Because I think a lot of times people do wait, partly because I think they, they say it's just because their child is shy. I think a lot of times people will say, well, you know, she's just shy. Or our pediatricians will say, you know, he'll grow out of it. He's just shy. You know, I'm sure that he'll be fine once he gets to school. So how do parents differentiate shyness mm-hmm from and what's developmentally possibly appropriate or a little bit extreme versus selective mutism? Okay, so a child that is shy, it's something that only lasts for a small period of time. A shy child will warm up. They go in into a room, they hide behind their mom, but then they're attracted to what everybody else is doing. They might not speak to begin with, but they engage. And slowly, if you're thinking, for example, at a party or at a park, the child slowly but surely, even physically, we see they are participating, laughing, pointing, using single words. And really, after a couple of hours, maybe they're not fully speaking, but they are communicating. That is a key factor, a key point. 
Children with selective mutism don't warm up. They actually keep in the the stay in the frozen state for quite a while, if not for the entire time. Their amygdala is constantly firing. It's alarm, alarm, alarm. This is danger, danger. And they are uh, like in front of a dinosaur. They experience the quadruple F flight, flight, freeze, or faint. They go and they go around. Now, within selective mutism, we see a spectrum. We do have those children that they can point and they can nod, and actually, it's the only speech action of speech. But actually, it's most common that we see children with the whole thing physically. So you see them that they're quite rigid. So it is really, really important. And you're right. People don't want to label their child. Three years old, selective mutism. Three years old with anxiety. But they do. They do. And the earlier you, you proactively get help, the better the long-term prognosis. So I think that that is, in both of our worlds, a sad thing that I think people are concerned about labeling their kids to the point where they miss out on some of those early interventions that could really make a huge difference, especially with selective mutism well, and anxiety. And they go hand in hand. So I think it's a good point. Absolutely. Neuroscience teaches us that it takes 21 days to change a habit. But the earlier in your life you change that habit, the stronger it's going to be. The first seven years of our life, that is when actually there isn't very much of a difference between conscious and unconscious mind. So actually children at the age of seven still think that a banana, you know, is, you know, you're eating, you're going, oh, it's really, oh, it's really bitter. They actually think that you mean that. But after the age of seven, they almost like change. So why wouldn't we want to work and give them the tools? from a really early age. I say this very often, that I am lucky because I am a mum of recovered selectively mute child. Hmm, And I, I see things 360 degrees. I know what it's like when you go to the supermarket and somebody stops you and your child is looking at you in fear going, I can't believe you're speaking to that person. I know when your child is looking at you and going, why are you not answering for me? So when I support parents and support children, I know exactly that I was lucky enough that someone told me your child is not speaking outside home because I hadn't realized because she was fine at home. Yeah, I think a lot of parents struggle with that because sometimes until they go to school, they don't realize that it's something more because what they observe often is just a friendly, outgoing child at home that's comfortable. And then they think that they're maybe shy when they're in new situations and really don't see that long-term, not slow to warm, but never warm, you know, situation where, you know, the alarm bells would ring. Absolutely. And that's pivotal. Can you see a huge discrepancy between home speech and behavior and outside speech and behavior? And we're talking about almost Jack and Hyde, two different children. And we hear that a lot. Oh, my goodness me. He is so funny. He is so loud. And the teacher goes, oh, we don't even hear him coughing. 
We don't even hear him crying. We don't even hear him laughing. We don't even see him eating. This is how bad the anxiety is. Some children actually don't even move their mouth, Mm. how they are so scared. So when we see those two things, we know that there is something more than just being shy. A, A shy child would eat. Yeah. A child with anxiety would struggle with that. Right. Exactly. And that, that's such a good point because I see that a lot in the kids that I work with, you know, just not eating, especially the ones that I had worked with that had SM, not eating at school at all, which can become a really big issue when you're going to school full time. So what should parents do when they're, they're suspect to what's going on with their child, but they don't know how do they get them assessed? I know this can be different in different countries. Mm-hmm. Well, Certainly um, in the UK, we are still trying to find out the right pathway because unfortunately SM is not well known. So doctors and psychologists, teachers are not taught about it. They learn once that they're in and they work. So sometimes teachers go, oh, that's quite nice. He's quite quiet. And I say this in my training. A quiet child is a forgotten child. Mm. Oh, thank goodness, Mary. She is so quiet. Yeah. Because they are dealing with children with ADHD, children that they have their own difficulties, children with, you know, they have to, you know, they're dealing with anything. So if you've got Mary at the back of the room and she's quite quiet and she does everything that the teacher says, what if she doesn't speak really that's not their concern right so the first thing is here in the UK certainly speech and language therapists that's one thing but I know certainly in the states you do have very specific centers across the states so you've got one which is brilliant run by Dr. Kurtz in New York And he's got an amazing program. You've got something run by the Selected Mutism Center, run by Dr. Eliza Shippen-Bloom, and she is marvelous. She's just, she's got the center, and they do research. And I know across, you know, I've, I've kind of started to hear people that they're connecting with me because their waiting list is really long. So you really want to speak to a professional, I would say in general, that has experience with selective mutism. I think that no matter where you are in the world, you want someone that has a postgraduate training in SM. I wouldn't say anyone because you know what? I've had a lot of parents that said, oh, but I did go to the psychologist. I did go to the GP and they said, oh, they will grow out of it. And my message to everyone is, Yes, it is true. We do know that some children get out of it. But is that some? Is the 2%? Do you want to take the chance? What if your child doesn't come out? Then you you have a seven-year-old with many other anxiety. It will not just stop on selective mutism. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's good advice because I know here in the United States, there is a network. I'll have to link it in the show notes. I'll have to go back and look at my research, but there are experts and there are therapists that have taken extra training. And you really do want to find someone who has that training. Mm -hmm. I I don't even treat SM because 
I haven't taken that extra training. And so even though I understand anxiety and social anxiety, it's a very systematic, methodical approach, just like ERP for OCD, you know, not everybody should be treating OCD. And a lot of people think they can because they think it's under the umbrella of mental health, but that's a very specific training. And I feel Mm -hmm. like the same thing happens with eating disorders or body focused, repetitive behaviors or SM, those all have their own individual approaches and you want to find someone who specializes in it. And that might require a lot of research and digging, mm-hmm. but worth it to find someone who's going to not discount or, or validate your struggles or your child's struggles and give them the tools to get started right away. Something that works really well when the child is very little is not necessarily a direct approach. So for children, I would say under the age, even at the end, and under the age of seven, is an indirect approach because it's how the world around them react to them more than their awareness of what is happening. As I said to you, I absolutely love the neuroscience. And several years ago, I did a postgraduate course in Australia, and I absolutely loved what she said. And when we work with their unconscious mind, so the behavior is the one that has the most effect. So things like not speaking for your child, not being affected by what people say about your child, be ready when the world will say to you, oh, has the cat eaten your tongue? Or, oh, are you not speaking to me? Oh, that's awfully silly. Let's talk about Uh, that because these are good. Because I mean, there'll be a lot of parents listening to this who, one, maybe not ready to get treatment not sure, more of a wait and see kind of thing. Two, some of them may not be able to find or connect with resources right away. And so these takeaway tips are going to be really helpful for a lot of people listening. So when you say don't speak to them, and this kind of reminds me of OCD in a sense, like where we have to pull back our accommodations first, there's a lot of stuff that we could do as parentally to really help. What should a parent do when someone comes up to you and says something like that? I mean, I know me with social anxiety, that's like torment. <laughs> like yes. I have to like excuse my child's behavior. Okay, so we go around, if you imagine a cycle. So that you are in the supermarket, you meet an old friend from school or an old neighbor and they go, oh, hi, Natasha. Oh my goodness me, who have you got there with you? Oh my lord, he is this your first child? Okay, so your first child is there. What's your name? Hmm? So question. So what you do is you know yourself as an adult, and you're going, oh gosh, he's not going to answer. What you do is you butt in and you say, Oh, and um, that that that's Francis. Right. Okay. So the child feels the anxiety, but as soon is released. So what we say, first tip is wait for five seconds. You wait for five seconds and you count one to five elephants, one elephant, two elephants, up to five. Because if you count one to five, that's three seconds. It's not five Mm -hmm. seconds. So what you're doing is you're letting your child feel that anxiety. I can't believe that person is asking me a question. Is mom going to rescue me? (gasps) So then you wait, okay? But then that's your demons. You're thinking, oh my goodness me, this friend has not seen me for ages. She's going to think that my child is rude or I've not been a good enough parent. I've not taught my child to answer back, right? So 
Then what you do is you look at your child and you rephrase what they've just asked. So what is your name? One elephant, two elephant, three elephant. You wait again. If nothing comes back and a frozen child is pretty much the case, then you give a forced choice. Is it Francis or is it Philippa? And you wait for five seconds. In the worst case scenario, if nothing happens, then you go down to the last step, which is yes or no. Is your name Philippa? Usually children nod. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that a no? Oh, okay, it's a no. Did you hear that? It's a no, although she's not said it, but she's communicating. Or is it Frances? Let's say your child nods. Oh, did you hear that? Her name is Frances. Now, what you're doing is you're not speaking for them, but you're making them understand that they are still communicating. Interesting. Now, I I can imagine a lot of parents listening to this who maybe do speak for their kids are thinking, oh my gosh, like that, that would put my child in so much discomfort. Why would I do that? Why, when I could just simply answer, it just seems cruel to play devil's advocate. I mean, I understand. Yeah. How would you explain that to parents? Well, your child's brain would get used to dealing with that situation. And the more you do it, the better they get at it. And what we find is you're building their courage. Otherwise, your your signal to your child is going to be, don't worry, communication is hard. I will do it for you. You don't have to do it. And that's where is the center of the fear. Whereas we want the child to deal with it. You're not saying, oh, come on, are you talking? You're giving them steps towards communication. I guess that's maybe why I called my speech therapy business word steps. Because I I was really thinking, I was really thinking about them. Because it's a tiny, tiny steps. Now, maybe the next time it might come really quickly. You know at what level your child is at. So what I'm saying is, You want your child to communicate to you, never mind what the world is thinking. We are desensitizing them by letting the world hear their voice. Then the communication between your child and the world is a next step. But unfortunately, Natasha, what everybody thinks, teachers, parents, grandparents, that ultimately what it is, is the chat between the child and the person. But my role is to step that, even in tiny, tiny little step to make them understand we're working towards communication. I have children, they are even frozen. They can't even choose their ice cream. But I make them do tiny, tiny little steps. So choosing the ice cream before they go in and they say, I'd like pistachio at the door of the ice cream shop. Yeah, that is a step. We then kind of do it with little children. We don't need to explain with older children. We explain that they're getting braver. But, you know, we're, you know you're not going to do anything that you don't want to. But the more you're exposed to it, it just becomes easier. And then the next time, you're not going to even realize, you're not going to even think about it. Yeah, I love that. You're saying a lot of interesting things. Like 
when we swoop in and we speak for our kids, we're really conveying a message that they can't do it and that it's scary and that that they need us and need to be dependent on us as a crutch to communicate in the world. And I love this like scaffolding approach of building up these small micro steps and, and sitting in discomfort, which is something that we just talk about overall with anxiety and OCD in general is getting our kids to sit with discomfort for them to build up that tolerance. I can sit in this discomfort while my mom is pausing and learn how to tolerate that and find my voice at whatever level I can, whether it's a one word answer or even just a very small nod, I'm still communicating myself. Absolutely. And you've mentioned nodding. So children with selective mutism, some of them could have severely inhibited temperaments. And it means that not only they have got SM, but they keep everything to themselves. So because people believe that it's only about the voice, they don't really understand what's happening in their body because it's all about, oh, it's all about the voice. It's all about the voice. But actually even waving, even pointing, even nodding can be hard. And that's why is a communication disorder is not just a voice disorder. Yeah. So at school or at a party, if you know that you've got a friend with a child with selective mutism, we then say, use the I wonder rather than a direct question. So you... Unlike children with anxiety and stammering, that we look at them to let them say, I'm right here. With SM, we don't do that. We don't look at them because they feel the anxiety. Because remember what I said, they've got a very inhibited temperament. And Dr. Eliza Shippen-Bloom talks a lot about uh, difficulties in their sensory. So some of them also have sensory disorders that you talk a lot about their clothes, they are highly sensitive. They don't like things that they are tight or things that they are rough or has an effect on what they eat. So we can go on. It can can be very complex and also can be very simple. But the, I'm going to be doing some painting, but I don't know, I think I'm going to be doing the sea. I wonder what colour will I need? Or I wonder what brush will I need? Children don't feel that that's a question mm-hmm. and they often say blue. So then the next step is, oh, well, that's a really good idea. Thank you for sharing that with me. Can you see that my is a very different way of communicating rather than, oh, um, Francis, do you think I should use blue or red? Well, that's, although it's a forced choice question, maybe the child is not quite ready to do that. And I do this with games. I love, I love games. So with parents, I often say a warm-up activity, no matter where you are, helps. So imagine before you're doing a full workout, you need to warm up otherwise, or you need to do a cool down. Otherwise, you're going to have, you're going to be really sore. For the voice, we have to keep going. We have to put the engine on. It's a bit of a diesel. So the activity is bring an activity that you like. So if you've got a little one, it could be a book. It could be any motivating activity that you can carry with you in your bag. It could be Uno. It could be a puzzle. But what you're doing with your child, you are taking the role of a commentary. 
oh, we're going to take the puzzle out. I don't know. Shall we do Thomas the Tank or Peppa Pig? Oh, I don't know. We brought them both. Which one shall we do first? Mm. So you're actually really commenting and you're inviting your child without saying, oh, choose a game, but tell me out loud. That is putting pressure. Yeah. So you can do that whilst you're at the library or whilst you're in the shop or whilst you're in the you know supermarket. Oh, oh, daddy really loves that cake. Oh, I can't remember. What was daddy's favorite cake? So you're talking to yourself and it's children love to butt in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, children love to fill the pause. Mm. And that is something as speech and language therapists for children with language delays. We do that a lot. Twinkle, twinkle, little. Mm -hmm. And it's just a natural thing to fill a pause. S and children love that because it's not a direct question. So if anything, the biggest takeaway is stop asking questions. (laughs) Be very clever. Be very clever. Yeah, that's and a good Natasha, approach. we get this a lot from grandparents. They get very hurt. Well, why would you not speak to grandma? Or why would you not speak to me? I'm your granddad. I mean, I'm, you know, blood of your blood. And <laughs> and please, let's try not to take it personal because we know anxiety and we know that phobias make no sense. Right. It's irrational. Your brain is telling you to be scared of what? Somebody hearing your voice? How silly is that? But for them, it's not silly. For mm-hmm. them, it's the end of the world. Yeah. And it's good to mention that because I think a lot of times relatives do take it personally. Or, I mean, even sometimes you have a child who will only talk to the mom and not the dad. And that's really hard for a parent to handle. So very, very much that. Yes. So what's what's one last thing a parent can do at home to work with their child. I, I love the way that you're talking about how to talk to your child differently. I think that even though it's so simplistic, I think it's something that most people just wouldn't think about mm-hmm. as far as how to, you know, help the child move through that issue. Because a lot of times as a parent, we're anxious and we see this issue and we, we kind of are overzealous and we're quick to be like, we're going to nip this in the bud and we're going to get you to talk and probably shut down that child a lot quicker. So what's another quick takeaway that a parent can do in their home to facilitate comfort around communication. I'm going to use a tip from, again, another neuroscientist called Daniel Siegel. And he's written some amazing books, The Child's Brain. And he has a technique called Name It to Tame It. And he uses it for children who are having a tantrum. I use it for children with anxiety so when your child is having a hard time because they also have a hard time at home we need to remember that sn is the cherry on the cake or the icing on the cake but underneath we see a lot of things frustration perfectionism highly sensitive child and those things are very obvious in their homes is really to say oh i can see you're having a hard time what does that look like and really create a picture around that and being very empathic and being a model modeling it's a very powerful tool in any therapeutic intervention and also say to them oh do you know I was late to work 
today I was so stressed. I felt that my, whatever you want to call it, my little bubble in my head was sizzling and it was telling me, oh my goodness, Anna, you're really late. And my heart was pounding and I was sweating. Oh, and I thought it was the end of the world. And then I kind of had to calm down and it was, I, I, for me, it was, oh, I could see everything was black. You know, I sat down and I had a bit of something to drink and I could see that my little bubble started to grow smaller. But for a moment, oh, my goodness me, that bubble was all over my body. Do you have that? So you're basically teaching your child what we call the emotional language. They are attaching language to a feeling because for them it's intangible. It's something that they can't see. It's something they can't hear, but it's something that they can feel. Yeah. So why not bring it out? Yeah, I love that. I think that's really helpful. I think connecting, you know, just because a child is experiencing something doesn't mean they understand it or they have language yeah. for it, which can be really confusing, especially to a yeah. younger child. Yeah. And so when then, you know, I, I deal with a lot of young kids because I go out and say, do you think so in schools or when I do training and on my YouTube channel, I say, is this what you think there is? Deal with that now. So because my 21 year old is the child that was not treated 16, 17 years ago. And without help, that can have such a debilitating effect. These people then can't be independent because they can't even go shopping. Right. But I have to say, I have a lot of little ones and the, the success rate is really high. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is I would say 100% yeah. because it's part of their development. So right. when we talk about the bubbles, boo-boo, whatever you want to call it, when then they've ordered their ice cream, going back to what I was saying earlier, you can say, wow. You managed to deal with your bubble really well. That was really brave. Thank you very much for sharing that with me. So you tap onto their self-esteem. And if the child is not able to do it, then you say, oh, I could see that you were really trying. That's excellent. I'm sure that the next time you're going to try even harder. Because it's not about the ability, they are good or bad. Yeah. It's the trying. Yeah. Underneath, we're always feeding them with good language, trying, you know, is the bubble, is that big or small? How are you dealing with this? And those are things that then can use later on. And you can see children going, oh, did you see me? I was brave. brave. (laughs) I'm going to order my chips. You go ordering your chips. You're going to order with me. No, no, I'm going to order my chips. And I hear phenomenal stories and they say Anna I wasn't ready and he just went up and said I need chips or chips or chips and mayonnaise because I said two words mommy I said two words did you say two words Uh, did you feel really brave today yes two do you think I I should have said three words two words that's a really good try but can you hear my language I'm commenting back I'm reflecting back. I'm not adding, mm, well, maybe maybe a bit more. 
So this is what I teach parents. And every therapy, every family is different because every child is different. And we really want to hold their hands towards steps, you know, towards communications. That's so, so important. Yeah, I, I love all that. I think just the way you talk to kids and getting an uplifting, motivating approach to your child is so important. So I'm sure a lot of people are just going to want to soak up more of you and your knowledge because I could sit here and listen to you all day. Finally, oh. very, very relaxing. I'm like, I feel better talking to her. <laughs> She's very uplifting. Where can people find you and your work? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I have a, a YouTube channel called Word Steps. And the majority of my videos there are about selective mutism, but also about speech. Selective mutism is not a speech disorder. However, you I might have children that they also have speech and language issues as well as their selective mutism. So I also support parents in helping them with their speech signs. So I make videos on demand. I have a lot of people that also join my Facebook group called Selective Mutism. My child is scared of talking. And it's a very small group. So people from all over the world and people from Canada. Um, I have a lot of bilingual families. I'm a multilingual therapist. I'm, I speak Spanish, Italian and English. That's so <laughs> bilingualism and selective mutism seems to be going hand in hand, hmm. but not because it's, select, it's bilingualism that causes selective mutism, but bilingualism adds another dimension yeah. because the child doesn't feel competent in one language as well as on the other, yeah, especially sense. successive bilingual children. So children, they maybe come to, to the UK and they've lived all their life in Greece and all of a sudden they're here. So and they go past that quiet, you know, the silent period. They still struggle to communicate. So, yeah, so it's, it's a very small community, but lovely because then parents feel that they can talk to each other. Well, I will link the YouTube channel and I will link your Facebook group and your website so that people can know where to find you. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you found that interview helpful. I thought that she had some really good advice and suggestions. And if you want to know more about Anna and her work, you can visit her website. I will leave a link in the show notes and you can visit her YouTube channel and I will leave a link in the show notes for those as well. Definitely check out her work. Her YouTube channel is very cool. She does videos on lots of different topics, but she has tons on selective mutism and really good short takeaways that you can start applying right away. So I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, don't forget to hit a star on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. All that support is super helpful. And if you have a few extra moments, it really helps for people to write a review and let other parents know that there's some benefit from this podcast. So I hope you find the sparkle in everything you do, and I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. 